Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Wes Johnson, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Love the truth that's found in that song. We are held firm and secure in the hands of God. It sets us up so perfectly for what, uh, for what we are going to be talking about today as we continue in our series in Genesis uh, that we've been in. If you're just joining us today, we have been in a series called Follow Me Orientation. Follow Me being our ministry theme for the year as we look at what it looks like for us to, or for us as followers of Jesus to faithfully follow him into the life that he's called us into. The orientation part of this is uh, the fact that we are have been in the past few weeks looking at questions like, who are we? Uh, where did we come from? Why are we here? For what purpose were we created? And for that, we've been in the first few chapters of Genesis. So over the past four weeks, we've gone through Genesis chapter 1 through 4, and we're going to be picking up today uh, in Genesis 5. If you have your Bibles in front of you and want to turn there to Genesis 5, that is where we're going to start. Um, but just to kind of recap where we've been, Genesis chapter 1, we have the beautiful story of God speaking creation into life, right? Genesis chapter 2, we have the creation of God's special creature, uh, mankind. He creates Adam and he creates Eve, male and female. Their union together, a unique representation of the love of God, a, a unique way that we bring glory to God uh, as we live in relationship with him. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, when mankind rebels against God by eating of the fruit that they were not, or they were commanded by God to not eat of, they disobey God, and they're banished from the garden. But in that banishment, there's a promise inserted there that the offspring of the woman uh, would crush the head of the serpent, would break the curse that they're now living in. And then uh, we get to, to chapter 4, which is what Pastor John talked about last week, which was Cain and Abel. Uh, and it's interesting, as John talked about last week, Cain's name literally means, here he is. And so there's a chance that when Adam and Eve had Cain, they thought, here he is. Here is the one who's going to free us from this curse that we're under. Uh, they thought this was the fulfillment of the promise of God. But was that the case? No, Cain is overcome by the sin that was crouching at his door, as it says in Genesis chapter 4. And he kills his brother Abel with his bare hands, and God places a curse on Cain and sends him out as a, as a wanderer across the earth. And at the end of chapter 4, we see uh, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And, it, and after Seth is born, it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that brings us to where we are here and now in chapter 5. So um, we're going to be talking today, as we continue in our series in Genesis, about a guy named Noah, Noah, the ark, and the flood. Now, this is a familiar story probably to most of us, and when I say Noah's Ark or Noah and the Ark or Noah and the Flood, uh, there are probably a lot of images that, that flood your mind, right? And for most of us, it's, it, it's probably Sunday school, honestly. I know for me, I'm instantly transported back to being in the little tiny Sunday school chair with my handful of animal crackers, putting the animals, the lick and stick animals on, on the uh, paper uh, but they weren't actual stickers. They were, they were just pieces of paper that you licked, and then you stuck them on the other piece of paper. Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about. They had that strangely satisfying taste, kind of like envelopes do. And then you, you, you stuck them on the ark there. But uh, that's, oftentimes, that's the, the last time we may have talked about Noah and Noah's ark. And that's okay. That's, that's a good thing to have, a, to have uh, that childhood understanding of what 
happened in this account of Noah that we're going to get into today. It's a good thing for, uh, to teach children to understand that God is faithful, that God rescued Noah uh, through the flood, that he put his rainbow in the sky as a symbol of his promise to never flood the earth again. And those are all great things to teach children how to understand this story that happens uh, here in Genesis uh, 6 through the first part of Genesis chapter 9. But at some point, we all need to move through that childhood understanding, and we need to move into a deeper understanding of what is actually going on here in Genesis chapter 6, of what actually happens in the time of Noah. See, up to this point, all of these other little sections uh, of, of creation that we've seen have been in little one-chapter one increments of, of, of creation, and then Adam and Eve, and then the fall, and then Cain and Abel, and now we have... We have essentially four chapters about this guy named Noah and what happens with the flood. This is important. We're going to be covering a lot of ground today. See, whereas the, the story of Noah is filled with great hope and great promise, the story is also one of great warning for us. It should cause us to examine our own hearts. It should cause us to examine our own lives and the way that we're choosing to live. And that's what we're going to get into today. But first, we need to bridge the gap. And this is what chapter 5 does. Chapter 5 is one of those genealogy chapters that oftentimes we skip over, um, but th those are important also. Um, they they kind of show us where we've been, and, and in this case, chapter 5 gets us to where we are now with Noah. In the first verse of chapter 5, it's reiterated again the beginning, that God created man, he created them in his image, in his likeness, and he, cre he called them mankind, or Adam kind, Adam means man. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. And then we go down through the line of Adam with a bunch of guys who lived for a really long time, who have uh, names that are really fun to say. And then we get uh, down to Noah at the end of chapter 5. And Noah's father is a man named Lamech. And, and, and Noah was born, and Lamech says, he names him Noah, and he says, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So Noah's name literally means rest and comfort. And then here in the last verse of chapter 5, after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so here we have uh, Noah's uh, three sons lifted, li listed, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you're like me and you lay awake at night thinking, why are they listed in this order? There is an importance to this. If you were wondering that, if you wrestle with that as much as I do, why is Shem listed first? Because we know three chapters later, he's not the oldest and he's not the youngest. Three chapters later, we see that Ham's the youngest, Japheth is, is the oldest, so why does Shem get to be listed first? What's the big deal? There is a big deal, and I'd like to point that out today because it's, it, it, it's a really neat thing. It's one of those little big things. Shem is listed first, even though he is neither the oldest nor the youngest, um, because it is comes. Think about that. Oftentimes in Scripture, children are listed in matter of importance. But most times it's the oldest listed first because they're the ones who receive the birthright. But here, Shem is listed first. And we know from later on, because Luke 3 has this same genealogy, that it's through the line of Shem that Jesus comes. And that should be amazing to us, that here in the first uh, five chapters of Genesis, we already have two directional arrows pointing us directly to Jesus. The first one being the promise of, uh, to Adam and Eve from God as he banished them from the garden that of their offspring would come one who would break the curse. That is pointing to the Messiah. That's pointing to Jesus. And here we have this, this little tiny detail uh, that Shem is listed before his brothers, but it's through the line of Shem that the Messiah comes, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. And to me, it just underlines the consistency of Scripture 
this uh, genealogy that goes up through Shem, through Noah, all the way back uh, to Adam is the same one listed in Luke chapter 3 when it talks about the lineage of Jesus. Okay, Scripture is, is so consistent. It underscores the authority of Scripture as the authoritative Word of God. God's Word says that all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, training, and rebuking in righteousness. Even these very beginning books, we see they start to point to Jesus. And even these uh, beginning chapters of God's Word, we profit from these uh, so much. Uh, all of Scripture is profitable for us today, so that's an important framework to think through as we read even a genealogy in chapter 5. Okay, this is all pointing to the one who's going to come and redeem the world. And so I don't know if you love that detail as much as I do. I just thought that that was amazing, that, that, that Shem is listed first, and it's through the line of Shem that Jesus comes. It actually makes me think of Colossians 1, where it says that in everything Christ will have the preeminence. In everything Christ will be put first. I think this is a cool detail that helps allude to that also. So here in chapter 5, some people sat down and they did the math and, and saw, and were able to figure out, it wasn't me because I'm terrible at math, but they were able to figure out how long it was from the days of Adam to the days of the flood with Noah. We can do that because we have the ages of all these guys listed and when the next son was born. Okay? So what we have here is we have 1,656 years from the days of Adam to the days of the flood and Noah, 1,656 years. Chapter 5 helps us bring us up to speed to where we are. A lot of time has passed. That's a lot of time to where we are up into the days of Noah. And here is where we get into chapter 6. So I'm going to read this. It'll be on the screen behind me, but if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. Chapter 6, verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. We've got to pause right here, and we've got to think about the, what, what God is actually saying here. When he says, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. So the word mortal actually uh, means flesh. It means they are, they are corrupt. It's the word for sinful flesh. So it's God recognizing the sinfulness of mankind. And he's saying their days will be 120 years. One interpretation of this verse has been that God is putting a cap on, on the human lifespan, right? It's easy to read that and get that from this text, that no one's going to live. You have all these guys in chapter 5. Methuselah lived, lived 969 years. It's easy to read that verse and think and, and read that God is going to cap mankind's years at 120 years. But we know that that's probably not the case because after the flood, we still have record of people living into the 400 and 500 year, uh, 500 years uh, of lifespan, but uh, it, it most likely means, and this is a, a more accurate description of what this means, as God recognizes the sinfulness of humanity, he says their days will be 120 years, and from this point, we know historically, uh, from the time listed in scripture, it was 120 years until the flood came. So that's what that verse means. Okay, so when, when, when God is, he's already recognizing the, the sinfulness of the human race, and he says mankind's days are going to be 120 years. In 120 years, I'm going to bring about a judgment on the earth. Let's continue in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Okay, we have to pause here because the question in everyone's minds is, who in the world are the Nephilim? And the answer is, we really just don't know. <laughs> They're only mentioned a couple times in Scripture, and there are a couple things in Scripture we just don't have a whole lot of detail uh, about, and that's okay. 
There are some things in the Word of God we won't understand this side of eternity. And the Nephilim, we just aren't given a whole lot of information as to who the Nephilim are. Who, what does it mean when it says the sons of God and the daughters of humans? What, what does that mean? Like I said, the Nephilim are only mentioned a couple of times, but they're of the people who have studied this out, they've come up with a few different theories. And it is profitable for us to look into this. When we come to a passage of Scripture we don't understand, it, it, the temptation is for us to just skip it and move on. But, but it is good to dig into this, to look into it uh, in, in sections like this in the Word of God. So really briefly, the theories about who the Nephilim are, they're interesting, are as follows. Okay? The first one being that when it says the sons of God, it means that these are fallen angels who are intermarrying with human women and having children by them. Okay? There's very little uh, scriptural evidence to support this. The, the second viewpoint is that sons of God means fallen angels are possessing human men who are uh, marrying human women and having children by them, and they were these heroes of old and men of renown. Again, there's, there's very little scriptural evidence for this. But there's a third view, and that's that when it says sons of God, it means the line of Seth. And when it says that the daughters of humans, it means the line of Cain. So if you remember when Seth was born, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. If you remember, Cain was cursed after he killed Abel and, and sent out as a wanderer over the earth. And so some believe that this is alluding to uh, the line of Christ. So this is Seth's line, uh, that they were sinfully intermarrying with the cursed line of Cain. But again, we, we just don't have a whole lot of information on who the Nephilim actually are. But I would encourage you to, to, to study that out on your own uh, and to study that for yourself. But that's okay. There will be things that we don't understand in Scripture uh, this side of eternity, but it's still good to wrestle with them as opposed to just uh, skipping through and moving on. So I, I would encourage you to look into the Nephilim uh, on your own in, in your free time. Um, but let's continue to verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this is an interesting description of just how wicked the world was in the days of Noah. This is a big deal uh, for it to be listed in Scripture that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's a heavy statement. And that, that it just points to the fact that the world has become so evil, so wicked, that the, that the creator God has come to a point where he says that he, is, he regrets creating mankind. And you think just five chapters ago we were in Genesis 1 and everything was beautiful and everything was great and God created everything. And he said that all of this is good. And now here we have the wickedness that so consumed the world that it, it grieves the heart of God so much that he regrets that he makes mankind. What happened in that time? It's a simple three-letter word, and the word is sin. This is 656 years of the effects of sin ravaging the world, and now the world is so consumed with violence and with corruption, and the heart of God is so grieved that he comes to the point of saying, I'm going to blot out the human race from the earth, save for Noah and his family. And it's a really important thing that we need to, that we need to take from this. Today we're going to have some observations from the book of, or uh, from the, Genesis chapter 6. There's so much in the story of Noah that we can glean from, that we can pull from, but today it's going to be very simple. Three simple observations and then a challenge at the end that are going to help us in our walk with Christ understand how we can better follow Jesus because there's so much we can learn from the life of Noah and from the account of Noah and the flood. But the first observation is this. God hates sin. 
This is, it is impossible to read these few verses and come to any other conclusion. God despises sin. And the, it, there's a reason for that. It's because sin is the antithesis of the character and the nature of a holy and perfect God. Sin is, in essence, it is rebellion against God. It is disobedience against God. It is a turning of our back to God and running in the other way. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit uh, in the garden and they disobeyed God, they, they chose to follow their own desires uh, over um, what God had commanded them. And in that way, they, they separated themselves from God, which is what sin does. They turned their backs on God and they ran headlong in the opposite direction towards their own destruction. This is what sin does. It enslaves us to the desires of the flesh. It separates us from God. It clouds our discernment and our judgment so that we aren't able to see uh, what the right path is. God hates sin. And we see here that the world is so filled with sin. God regrets creating man. This is a serious thing to God. And if we are followers of Christ and we, and we are claiming to love Jesus and want to structure our lives around his commands and live to please him, then the logical next step of this is if God hates sin, how does this impact me? If I know that God hates sin, that he cannot be in the presence of sin, that God is a just and holy God and must punish sin, then the question falls to me as a follower of God, do I? Do I hate sin? And here's the deal. We need to point this question a little more at ourselves. And really, it gets a little bit more pointed when we say, do I hate my own sin? Because I can hate other people's sin all day long. That's the easy part. I'll sit on my couch and turn on the TV, and, or I'll, you know, we witness people hurt each other, and we witness people lie to each other. And we sit here and we, you know, we cast our judgment on that, and it makes our blood boil when people do that to each other. But when it comes down to it, you know, I can't even count the number of times when I've attempted to justify my own sin when I've attempted to, to, to justify all the times that I've spoken poorly of somebody or treated somebody terribly. Oh, well, here's why. They treated me this way, so I treat. This is what we do as, as prideful, as stubborn, as sinful human beings. We attempt to justify our sin, but we know that man, sin displeases the heart of God. In fact, God hates it. He hates sin. And so it, it comes to us, do I hate my own sin to the point of I want to rid my life of sin? There's a reason why Paul writes in his letters to the churches over and over again, he tells them to get rid of sin. He says, get rid of all malice, get rid of envy, get rid of bitterness, get rid of hate, get rid of slander. He says, get rid of sexual immorality, adultery, and lust. Rid your life of it because this, this, this pleases the Lord. That's part of your old self. You need to live in the new self. And there's an important a reason why we are constantly reminded of this in Scripture, and it's because we have this sinful tendency to want to turn back into our sin and we have this tendency to, to try and justify our sin, even though we know it displeases the Lord. And so the challenge for us uh, from just these two verses is, do I hate my own sin? And do I hate my own sin to the point of, I want to rid my life of sin. We know that when we place our faith in Jesus, uh, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us who convicts us of sin. And yes, we stumble. And yes, we fall. But as we walk in this life through faith, in obedience to God, his spirit convicts us of sin, and his Holy Spirit does a work in us called sanctification. It makes us more and more like Jesus, with the goal being that as we are made more and more like Christ, as we follow with him in obedience, then more and more we'll be able to cast the sin out of our lives until one day uh, when Christ comes, we are, we are made a perfect in his image. But the Holy Spirit does the work of sanctification in us if we are following Christ. And if we are walking with him, we will hear the conviction of the Spirit who, who brings that, that sin up for us to bring it to the Lord in repentance. 
And so it, the challenge for us from this is, do I hate my own sin? Do I want to rid my life of sin? Because I know that sin is a serious deal to a holy and just and perfect God. And here in these verses, in the description of the world of Noah's day, we, just see, we see just how serious it is. It grieves the heart of God so much to where he says, I'm going to blot out mankind from the earth. It's uh, important to remember also that God, when he says, when he says that he regrets making mankind, he's not, he's not saying, I made a mistake. Because we know that God doesn't make mistakes. Because here's the deal, the change did not happen on God's part. The change happened on our part as mankind chose to disobey God and chose to turn and run away from God. And God, and God plans to, um, to blot out mankind from the face of the earth. But Noah found favor with God. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And if we look at the description of the world in that day, in the days of Noah, it, it creates an even bigger contrast to the, we, to the way we know how Noah lived. In verse 9, let's continue. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So this is a, this is a huge deal, that Noah is described as righteous, blameless, and walking faithfully with God, especially given the backdrop of the world that we know uh, that Noah lived in. And this is a big deal, especially also when you think about the fact that God examines every human heart. And for God to look out over all mankind, examine the condition of every human heart, and say, I'm going to blot out my, mankind from the earth except for uh, my righteous one, Noah, is, is a big statement. Is a testament to Noah's faith and the depth of Noah's trust in the Lord. Also, this phrase, walked faithfully with God, that you see in that verse, is only used once before Noah, and it was true of Enoch. In the middle of chapter 5, we see a guy named Enoch in that genealogy. It says twice of him that he walked faithfully with God. And then at the end of that portion about him, it says, Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more, for God took him. God did not allow Enoch to experience an earthly death in the way that every other human had up until that point. It says that Enoch walked faithfully with God, and God just took him to be with him. And this same phrase is used of Noah. It's an important, uh, it's an important distinction in the text. Noah walked faithfully with God. And here we see that God, um, we continue as God reveals his plan to Noah. So let's continue in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And he continues here. He continues in verse 15. He tells them this is how you are to build it. And he gives them the exact specifications for how long the ark should be, how wide the ark should be, how tall the ark should be, how many decks the ark should have. It should have a lower deck, a middle deck, and an upper deck. Uh, it should have one big door in the side. He, he, he tells them all the animals are going to come to you, Noah, to be kept alive. Uh, and you are to store up in the ark the food for them uh, and for your family. God gives him the exact parameters of everything he's supposed to do. And just to give us an idea on how big this boat uh, actually was, to put it in terms we understand, this boat was a football field and a half long. Okay, if you can picture that in your mind, this boat is, is huge. It was 50 feet tall. It had three decks on the inside um, as God directed Noah. And has anybody been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? Uh, from what I hear, it's, it's 
pretty amazing. They built a scale-size ark. If you're ever traveling through Kentucky, then you should definitely stop and check it out and just see how big this boat was. It is the biggest wooden vessel uh, created on record, rivaled only by some of the ships in ancient Greece. This is a modern-sized ship built uh, by Noah back in that day, which is just incredible to think about. And, you know, I, I, I uh, found something else fascinating just as I was studying for this message. I found an article from Business Insider magazine uh, from 2014. There was a group of graduate students from a university in the UK who said, we're going to do some research. We're going to take all the parameters in the biblical account of Noah, and we're going to measure how heavy the wood would be. We're going to measure how, we're going to take the approximate weight of all the animals, and we're going to see if this boat would float. And so that's what they did. They, they uh, calculated the weight of the wood. They, they took the measurements that God gives in Genesis, and they, they calculated how heavy the structure would be, how heavy the animals and the provisions would be. They applied the Archimedes principle for the displacement of water to see if the boat would remain buoyant. And you know what they found? They found that that boat would float and it would carry over 70,000 animals. And when they interviewed all the students about that research project, the, every single student they interviewed was shocked about how accurate the, the biblical description of the boat of Noah uh, was, that it would be big enough to hold that many animals and still remain afloat. This points to the greatness and glory of God, the omniscient God who knows everything, who, the most brilliant mind. And uh, it, it, it's just amazing that when they did that study, they were all so shocked that the science would match up with what God had Noah do. Isn't that amazing? And I love that, that, uh, that people today are studying that out and applying the science to it and seeing that this, this boat would float. This is a real uh, event that occurred. And not only would it float, but it would carry all of those animals. And uh, it just makes you think how, how amazing is our omniscient God. He gave Noah the exact parameters of the boat that would be needed to carry all the animals. And then we get to this last verse in chapter 6, uh, which is verse... Uh, verse 22, a key verse, Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. We have this listed multiple times about Noah. God commanded him to do something. Noah did everything exactly as God commanded. And this brings us to our second observation, and this is that the fruit of faith is obedience. The fruit of faith is obedience, and we know that obedience is not the only fruit of faith, but here in the life of Noah, it was Noah's faith in God, the fact that Noah believed God. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is being, uh, being sure of what we hope for and being certain of what we do not see. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that by faith, Noah built the ark. And so the fruit of Noah's faith was his obedience. He trusted God. He believed that A, God is who he says he is, and B, that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And that propelled Noah to obey exactly as God commanded him. And the challenge for us today as followers of Jesus is if we are walking by faith, as the word of God says, if we are living by faith and not by sight, is our faith deep enough that it motivates us, brings us a desire to obey the commands of God as outlined in Scripture, because it should. If we believe that God is who he says he is, if we believe that his promises are true, it should motivate us to want to obey him. It should motivate us to want to uh, uh, obey his commands in Scripture, obey the prompting of his spirit when he calls us uh, in life to follow him in faith. And the beauty of this is what, what God is going to call us into in life will always match his word. And so if you want to know what God might be leading you into, uh, study his word, read his word, get into his word, know his word, because that is where he has revealed uh, his plan, his, himself. 
And so the challenge for us today from this is that if we trust God, if we trust that he is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he said he was going to do, it should motivate us to want to obey him, and it should propel us into a life of radical obedience to God. And that was the case of Noah. God commanded, Noah did it exactly as God told him. And then here we get into chapter 7 where it's go time, it's game time. God says to Noah, chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says to Noah, go into the ark, you and your, your whole family, for I have found you righteous in this generation. Okay? So here, the, the time has come. God commands Noah to go into the ark. The interesting thing about this, if you want a, a practical example of the abiding presence of God with Noah through this whole uh, ordeal, that word go into is actually more closely translated to the word come into. Okay? Uh, 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 various biblical translations have this. The NIV and the ESV, I think, both say go into, but, but that word is more closely translated to come into. So talk about the presence of God. If, if God's inviting Noah to come into the ark, what does that imply? It implies that God has gone ahead of Noah, and God is calling him in to be with him, and that God is going to be present with Noah through the events that are about to unfold. And I love this because the same phrase is used again after the ark rests on the mountains of Ararat, as God says to Noah, come out of the ark. You know, Psalm 139 says, you hem me in before and behind. It's a picture of God goes before us and behind us. And this is such a, a neat, practical picture of how God has gone ahead of Noah. And the same is true for us. If we will keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the Lord lays the path before our feet. He goes before us. And here, God calls Noah to come into the ark. It's time. We're going to paraphrase a little bit of chapter 7, but we see that Noah and his family and all the animals, uh, they... They get on board the ark, and then in the middle of chapter 7, we see that the Lord closes the door. The Lord shuts them in, uh, as this verse says. And it makes me think, what is behind every promise that God has made? Behind every promise that God has made is the omnipotent hand of the Almighty God, who is going to see that promise through. And this, this picture of Noah entering the ark with all the animals and God closing him in, is such a neat picture of how God keeps his promises, about how God holds us within his promise, which we're going to talk about um, here in just a minute. And then in chapter 7, verse 17, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the, on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits, or more than 25 feet. So the highest, it, the water surpassed the highest mountain peak by over 25 feet. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So the waters remain on the earth for 150 days. And as chapter 8 continues, we know that the Lord sends a wind and the waters begin to recede. Noah sends out a, a series of birds um, who, who the first time come back uh, because they don't have anywhere to land. And Noah knows that the water hasn't quite receded yet. The second time they come back uh, with an olive leaf. Uh, and, and Noah knows, okay, some vegetation has appeared. The third time, the, uh, the birds don't come back, 
and uh, Noah knows that, okay, dry ground, the, the, the water is receding. And we pick up again in chapter 8, verse 13. By the first day of the first, first month of Noah's 600th and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And there he's ref referencing he's referencing a global flood. And here we see uh, God fulfilling his promise to Noah that God promised that he, would, that he would rescue him and his family from the flood and that he would establish his covenant with him. And we see God fulfill this promise. What I love about this uh, section of verses in chapter 8 is we see that even before God called Noah out of the ark, uh, the ground was dry. It, it mentions that Noah removes the covering. He saw that the surface of the ground was dry, but he stayed in the ark until God called him out. All this, this whole step of the way, as we see Noah follow God in faith, he waits for the command of God before he moves forward. God commands Noah to build the ark, he builds it. But Noah doesn't board the boat until God tells him to go into the boat. Noah doesn't leave the ark until God tells him to come out of the ark. And it's, it, it's such a great example of Noah's trust in the plan of God. And it seems so contrary to the way that, that I live oftentimes, where if things are moving too slow, we need to speed this up. I want to get off this boat. I want to take the reins, and we're going we're gonna to try and speed this up. Um, but Noah trusts in the promise of God, and he trusts in the plans of God. And he allows God to guide him through this whole process. And he stays in the boat until God tells him to come out. And then when he comes out of the boat, his first response is to do what? to worship the Lord. He builds an altar and he sacrifices some of the clean animals. Interesting um, fact about God's provision for them. If you'll notice in this account of Noah, in Genesis chapter 7, God sends more of the clean animals than he does the unclean animals. And there's a reason for that. The clean animals were the animals they could eat and the clean animals were also the animals for sacrifice. So when Noah gets off the boat, he's not sacrificing the only, you know, the only animals alive of that species. God made provisions for Noah for the whole way and Noah comes off the boat and he sacrifices some of the clean animals to the Lord as an act of worship. And God fulfills his promise. He keeps and he establishes his covenant with Noah. Uh, and this brings us to observation number three, and that's that God is the promise keeper. He is the promise keeper. What was Noah's role in all of this? His role was simply to obey. Whose job was it to fulfill this promise? It was the Lord's. And Noah trusted that he would. And God did. He brought Noah through the flood, and he established his covenant with him. We see in chapter 9 that God blesses Noah and his sons, and, and he tells Noah's family, I, similar to what he told Adam and Eve, everything on the earth I have given to you for food. The increase on the earth, multiply, subdue the earth. And then in verse 8 it says, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I established my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. Okay, that's you and me. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. Did God, was God faithful to keep his promise? He was. And this covenant that he makes with Noah, he has given us a sign of. It's, it's a rainbow. And so here in central Indiana, when we see the storms uh, blow through, at the, at the end of the storm, and the rainbow appears, it is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. That's what it was intended for. This is a sign of the covenant of God. And who is upholding that covenant right now as we speak? Who is faithfully upholding this covenant? It's him. The, the earth has not been overwhelmed by a flood again since the days of Noah. God is faithfully upholding the covenant that he made. And if God is upholding this covenant and we have a visual reminder of it, what reason have we to doubt any promises of God that he has made to us? And today, if you have a relationship with Jesus, what promise has God made to you? What covenant has he made with you? It's found in Hebrews 8. As God says, there was an old covenant, and that was contingent upon Israel's ability to be obedient. But Israel was continually unfaithful. And God says, a, a new covenant is coming, which is the new covenant that we enter into by faith. He says, a new covenant is coming that is no longer contingent upon your ability to obey. It is solely contingent upon the ability of God to keep his promise. And it's found in, in Hebrews 8. As God says... I will put my laws in their minds and in their hearts. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. If you remember, the previous covenant was, if you do this, I will do this. If you'll do this, I will do this. And Israel failed every time. And God has brought us now into a new covenant to where God says, you enter into this covenant with me. It is on me to keep this covenant and I have promised that I will uh, I will do these things. So today, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you have the promise of the abiding and eternal presence of God. You have the promise of the forgiveness and removal of your sins from God according to this new covenant that we have entered into. You have the promise of being able to know God, not just know of God, but know God personally and live in relationship with him. These are the promises that we hold to, the promises that we cling to. In the same way, these, these were the promises that Noah trusted. He trusted God, the promise keeper. So much so that Noah boarded an, an ark that had no rudder, it had no sails, it had no paddles, it had no anchor, and he gets on this boat with his family and all the, and all the animals. Noah didn't need to worry about where the ark was going to rest because God had made him a promise. Noah didn't need to worry about the ark staying afloat because God had made him a promise. Noah didn't need to worry about harm befalling his family because God had made him a promise and Noah trusted that God would fulfill that promise. And we have that, that, that same uh, challenge for us today. Do we trust that God is the promise keeper, that, we, that he will fulfill the promise that he made to us? As the Lord shut Noah in the ark that held them safely above the waves, so we who are in Christ have been hidden in Christ uh, in this covenant. We have been hidden in Christ, sealed in Christ, um, given his spirit as a sign of being sealed in Christ until the day that God calls us home or until the day that he comes back. 
Colin Smith is the author of a, a, a devotional program called 10 Keys to Unlocking the Bible. You may have heard of it. And there's one thing he says that has always stuck with me. He says, the Old Testament stories give vivid imagery to the truth of the New Testament. And it's so true about the story of Noah, because here it is. Jesus Christ is the ark. He is the ark that we enter into by faith, and we are shut in by the hand of God, and what is in the Father's hand cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. We can have assurance of salvation when we come to the Father through faith. And we can cling to that promise of God until the day that that promise is fulfilled and the day that Jesus comes. And we know that promise from God's word is coming. God has promised in his word that he, he is coming. He's bringing his kingdom of righteousness with him. But this is, where, this is where the story of Noah turns from our story of hope and, and, and of promise, which is, is what it is, but it is also a story of warning to us to examine our lives because we know, as Noah knows, that there is a promise that God is coming again, and when he comes, he will judge the earth. And we know from God's word that this next judgment is not coming through water, God has promised he won't do that again. The, the judgment that is coming with Christ, as Christ, the holy judge, will judge the earth, uh, it, it's fire. And we need to live as followers of Jesus with the right perspective as we follow Jesus in this life. In the same way that Noah lived, diligently working, awaiting the fulfillment of a promise, so too are we, here and now, to diligently follow God in obedience as we await the fulfillment of his promise. And as we wrap this up, I'd, I'd like to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, which, uh, which, which spells this out for us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 3, it says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own uh, evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliver, deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Here's the perspective. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then... Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him 
be glory both now and forever. Amen. See, in the same way that Noah is awaiting the fulfillment of the promise, so are we. And here we see that, that promise spelled out. Jesus is coming. He's bringing his kingdom of righteousness with him. He's also coming to judge the earth. And this question written by Peter is for us today. Since you know that all of this is going to happen, what type of people ought you to be? He says you should live holy, godly lives. You should make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. As we look forward to the promise, we must make every effort to walk faithfully with God in an increasingly wicked world in the way that Noah has. Following God in obedience and trusting that he will keep his promises. Today, if you have a relationship with Jesus and you are following him, I, I, I want to talk with you uh, for a moment. Because Noah, as he awaited the promise of God, he was given work to do. And we know from Scripture that as we await the promise of Christ's return, we have been given work to do. We have the commission of Christ to go into the world making disciples. We know that from Scripture we are Christ's ambassadors on the earth. We are the representatives of Jesus as if God was making his appeal through us, his appeal of salvation through us. And if we know that we have this work to do, we need to be diligent in completing this work until God comes, and, and that, that is one of the things we learn from Noah's faith, that Noah faithfully walked with God until he saw the fulfillment of the promise. And, and we have that same challenge for us as well. We must faithfully walk with God until we see the fulfillment of the promise. And I love how it says here in verse 11 um, that, that God is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient. And it says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. What does that mean for us today as Christ followers? That God is patient, and his patience means salvation. This means that every day that Jesus delays his coming is an opportunity for someone to come to him in faith and find salvation. God's patience means salvation. Every day that we are alive here, we have a job to do in calling people to faith in the Son of God by the way that we live, by the things that we say, the things that we do, by prioritizing our lives differently. Every day that the, that, that the, uh, that the coming of Christ does not happen is an opportunity for a friend, a family member, a co-worker, a son or daughter, a grandparent to come to faith in Jesus. And we have been given a role to play in that as followers of Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors called to carry the message of reconciliation. As John talked about last week, we are uh, to be ministers of reconciliation to a dark, to a dying world. We have work to do, and we need to diligently do it, following in faith and obedience until, we until the day that we see the promise fulfilled. To those of you who today you know you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you, you can't say with 100% uh, confidence that, that there was a moment in your life uh, when you surrendered your life to Christ and, and trusted in him, I just want to tell you today that today is the day of salvation. If God's patience means salvation, that means today, that today that God has given us, that we are alive as an opportunity for you to turn to him in faith, for you to call out to him in faith and surrender your life to him. There is no greater decision than you can make in your life than to surrender your life to Christ. It radically changes our life now, but even bigger than that, it radically changes our eternity as we are welcomed into the family of God and given the promise of eternal life in him. And today is an opportunity for you to do that. Because here's the deal, if the flood shows us just how much God hates sin, then the cross of Christ shows us just how much God loves us. 
if you look at the description uh, of just how much the sin in the world in Noah's day grieves the heart of God, then think about the weight of that sin being placed on Jesus as he hung in agony on the cross. This is why Jesus came. Isaiah 53 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid not on us, but on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all, the punishment of our sin that was due to fall on us, fell on Christ so that we might be reconciled to God. And today, if you believe that, that, that God's promises are true and that God is a keeper of his promises, as we see in this promise of Noah, that God is upholding the covenant to never flood the earth again, and we have a visual reminder of that out in nature, we believe every promise in Scripture that God has made, including Romans 10, 9, where it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe in the promise in 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, which means that he will do it, and just, which means that he is capable of doing it. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that promise can be true for you today if you will just come to him in faith and surrender your life to him. Today is the day of salvation. The Lord's patience means an opportunity for salvation for us. And if you'd like to know more about how you can enter into a relationship with Jesus, a saving relationship uh, with Christ, I would love to talk with you about that as the service dismisses, or even during this last song, um, I'll be down front. I would love to talk with you and to pray with you. If you're watching online today, we'd love for you to reach out to us, just, or even on your Connect card. Just say, I, I would like to know more about Jesus and how, uh, how I can be saved. There's no greater decision that you can make in your life than to surrender your life to Christ. The story of Noah is a very familiar story to most of us. It gets all the more familiar as the world around us looks more and more like the world did in the days of Noah, as we are surrounded by lawlessness in a world that's consumed with violence and corruption. It becomes all the more important that we who are followers of Christ stand firm in our faith, carrying the message of hope, the message of the gospel, living to reach the lost with the message of hope and clinging to the promise of God that he is coming. And with that in mind, we make every effort to be spotless and blameless on the day that Jesus comes. And I want to end with this scripture. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that God is faithful to keep his promises? And I pray that as a church we would it, it, that would fill our hearts with faith in a way that motivates us. It gives us a desire to obey God and to follow him. And so let's close in prayer. God, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you are the almighty God and you have made yourself known in the world around us. You have made yourself known in scripture. And God, we acknowledge today our, our need for you. We know that sin is an act of rebellion against you, and we know from your word that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We also know that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. We thank you for the picture of the ark that saved Noah and his family from the flood. It's just a picture of, of what Christ is for us by faith we can step into assurance of salvation in Jesus held secure held firm through the storms of this life 
brought into a, a glorious inheritance and future with you forever that nothing and no one can take away from us. God, we ask that these truths from the story of Noah today would, would give us a, a desire to obey you, to study your commands in Scripture and be obedient to you where you call us in life, God. It's really hard for us, Father, to be, to be people who follow the pridefulness and the sin in us. We want to follow ourselves. We want to, we want to lead. We want to take control. It's really hard for us to follow, God, and we need your help. So, God, we ask that by your spirit at work within us, and by your word, which is a lamp to our feet, that you would help us to follow closely the God who goes before us and behind us, the God who prepares a way for us, not turning to the right or to the left, but holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess, trusting that he who promised is faithful. God, we ask today that Jesus would come and that he would come quickly. Until that day, God, would you give us the faith to work diligently until the day that we see this promise fulfilled. We thank you for your gift of salvation. We pray if there's anyone here or listening, God, who, who has not received that gift, that you would prompt something in their heart, stir something in their heart, a desire to know you and realize that this is not, following Jesus is not a checklist. It is the pursuit of a person So God, we pray today that you would help us to do that, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And for those who don't know you, God, we pray that you would help them to, to be aware of their need for a savior, their need of someone to rescue them from their sin. And God, would you open their eyes to the truth of the gospel that the one who rescues came down to earth, the word of God took on flesh, became a man to carry our sin to a cross, so that we might step into a covenant not contingent upon our ability to obey, but contingent upon the ability of the Almighty God to keep His promises. We believe today, God, that You will do that. We believe that You are who You say You are. We believe that You will do what You say You will do. And now, God, we ask for your, for your help that You would help us to live with that perspective in mind as we live to please and honor You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.